the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This evening, we're drawing to a close our short series entitled With Jesus in the Garden, looking at Jesus' prayer found in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. Now, if you've been journeying with us through this series, you will know that we have chosen to split Jesus' prayer into three sections. Despite the fact, as Adrian reminded us last Sunday evening, that this prayer isn't as neatly arranged as maybe we might wish it to be, since there are reworked and expanded themes that present themselves throughout the prayer. To illustrate that, Adrian included a word cloud for John 17. Now, a word cloud is created by taking a section of writing and highlighting oft-repeated words through using a larger font, so that the word that appears the most is shown largest in the diagram. And here on the screen is the result of that word cloud, since I think it's a very helpful visual reminder of the major themes of Jesus' prayer. In keeping with the triune nature of Jesus' prayer, both Richard and Adrian split each section of the prayer and gain into three points, and I'm going to do the same this evening. If you've missed these two talks or you'd like to catch up, uh, then both are available on the Belmont Exeter website if you follow the links for talks and current series. This evening we're going to think about three main themes, although there are others, that I think we see very clearly explored in this final section of Jesus' prayer. And they all centre on the theme of unity, a fundamental theme with three distinct parts, as I mentioned, all very Trinitarian. So here they are, here are the three points for this evening. Jesus prays that God's people are one in him. Jesus prays that God's people are one in love. And then finally, Jesus prays that God's people are one in glory. Now, throughout the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, we read of several occasions where Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray. And whilst we, I'm sure, would acknowledge the importance of personal private prayer, the prayer of Jesus in John 17 isn't a private prayer. Instead, it's a public prayer. And as such, given its position within the Gospel, we need to include it as part of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, since this is a teaching prayer. Now, just prior to this chapter, Jesus' disciples had come to a point of revelation. In chapter 16 and verse 30, the disciples responded to all that Jesus had said to them in the upper room with these words. Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. That's John chapter 16 and verse 30. So as we think about the final section of Jesus' prayer, let's read again the verses from verse 20 onwards. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. 
Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, scripture reminds us on several occasions that the prayers we offer to God should be in accordance with his will. Now, in John's first letter, we read these words. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. That's 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. And as was mentioned last Sunday evening, whilst we might struggle to discern God's will, that's not an issue for Jesus. He was completely in tune with his Father's will. Earlier in this same Gospel, in chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. That's John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39. So being assured that Jesus' prayer is in accordance with God's mind and heart, his will, we can be completely confident that Jesus' prayer will be answered. For us, it's a different matter. We often include in our prayers phrases such as, if it be your will, because we are not able to completely know what God's will is for us. But Jesus has no need to qualify his requests in that way because he knows the will of his Father. Jesus prays about the things that are of paramount importance to his people, his body, the church. The things Jesus talks about here are his purposes for his people. As the title of this section of our series reminds us, in these verses, Jesus' prayer shifts its focus away from his first hearers, those 11 disciples walking alongside him towards the Garden of Gethsemane, and instead expands to include all those, us included, who become his followers after his return to his Father. And this section of Jesus' prayer centres on oneness. God's will and purpose for his people is unity. So firstly then, Jesus prays that God's people are one in him. Go back to verse 20 again. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now this unity or oneness is both spiritual and practical. Notice the foundation for this unity is contained within the three-in-one nature of the Trinity. If we are to experience unity as Jesus' followers, we need to recognise its source. Jesus says that because he and his Father are one, we can be one, both with God and with one another. At the very moment we placed our faith and trust in Jesus' saving death and resurrection, we were made new creation through new birth, a process that Adrian reminded us last Sunday evening is both now and not yet. But it's a process that describes a new reality and assures us of an inextricable link with God through the indwelling Spirit of God. 
The Apostle Paul, writing to his friends in Corinth, describes this new reality like this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's 2 Corinthians 5 verses 17 and 18. Because we are in Christ, God lives in us through his spirit, in part as a sign of our adoption into God's family. God becomes our spiritual father, a relationship that cannot be broken since it's a relationship of unity, guaranteed by the oneness of the Trinity of Father, Son and Spirit. And Paul, writing again in a letter to Christians meeting together in first century Rome, says this, Romans 6 and verse 5, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Leslie Newbegin, in his book, The Light Has Come, draws an even more remarkable conclusion from these words in verse 21 of chapter 17 of John. He writes, speaking of our unity with Christ, the unity that Jesus prays for is a spiritual unity, a gift of the Spirit. Therefore, it is a unity which not merely reflects, but actually participates in the unity of God, the unity of love and obedience, which binds the Son to the Father. Now, if you're anything like me, you may find this idea of being in Christ not the easiest of concepts to grasp. Uh, for some, um, Russian matryoshka, Stacking dolls provide a helpful visual analogy, but however we try to picture it, we need to hold firmly to the truth that this spiritual unity is not something that we can achieve, but rather it's the work of the triune God of Father, Son and Spirit at work in us. But not only is the unity Jesus prays in these verses a spiritual one, it's also a practical one. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Which leads me to my second point for this evening. Jesus prays that God's people are one in love. Go back to John chapter 17, uh, verses 23, the second half of verse 23, and then verse 26. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, so much of our daily news feed is dominated by stories of division and isolation and the negative effects that both have on the well-being of individuals and societies and nations. Right at the start of our Bibles, we discover God's intention for community in recognition that aloneness, as the writer of Genesis states, is not good. Jesus' prayer is that we will not only participate in a vertical relationship with the triune God, but also in a horizontal relationship with one another. The psalmist writing in Psalm 133 is clear in his recognition of God's intention for God's people to be united. He writes this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And in this section, we discover the nature of the bond that ensures unity and oneness, and it's love. 
Jesus' prayer is that we should love one another with the same intensity of love that he shares with the Father. But notice again that this isn't something that we can achieve by and of ourselves. Instead, it comes through an increasing awareness and knowledge of God's presence within us. But notice also that there is a central purpose to this demonstration of love. It's not that we can all cosy up and feel warm and fuzzy together in some kind of experiential cloud of otherworldliness. That's not it at all. The primary and possibly even sole reason is so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the purpose of our unity in love is so that Others will believe that God has sent Jesus and that others will come to a saving faith in a God who has loved and does love all people everywhere. If we truly have a desire to be recognised as followers of Jesus on our front lines as well as amongst our families and neighbours, then the best and surest way to do that is through love. Now all of this I think should make us pause to consider what the results of our words and actions are. Are we motivated always by a desire for unity? Do we demonstrate Christ's love for us in our everyday interactions with not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also with those we rub shoulders with during the normal course of our lives? And then finally, Jesus prays that God's people are one in glory. Look again, if you will, at verses 24, 25. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. Despite the, the unfolding horror of what lay ahead of him, Jesus looks forward to a day when God's kingdom will be fully revealed. In the first part of this series, when we looked at the opening five verses of the chapter, Richard unpacked for us the theme of glory, a theme that we have seen repeated several times in this prayer. Richard defined God's glory as the revelation of God on earth, those times when God's character, qualities and presence shine brightest, dispelling the pervading darkness, a theme that is taken up again by Leslie Newbigin in the book that I mentioned earlier. Newbigin writes, the glory of God is nothing other than the eternal self-giving revelation of the Father who loves and honours the Son and the Son who loves and honours the Father. Jesus' pray, prayer is that his followers will one day share in that glory. This is the ultimate outworking of Jesus' prayer for complete oneness, a unity that will be fully realised one day in the future. And yet, it is a unity that we as Jesus' disciples are called to foreshadow through the way that we reveal God's love to the world around us. Paul, writing to his friends in Ephesus, paints the mission of Jesus on a far larger canvas than we are prone to do, since we so often think of salvation in very limited and very personal terms. But there's so much more to it, says Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes this, He, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. The ultimate purpose of God for us and the whole creation is much greater than we can imagine. God's plan is for complete harmony, a unity that extends for eternity, a plan that will be realised and will never be undone. Tom Wright, in his commentary, John for Everyone, sums up the end of Jesus' prayer like this. This whole prayer 
is about the love of the Father surrounding Jesus and that same love as a bond and badge surrounding all Jesus' people, making him present to them and through them present to the world. One in him, one in love, one in glory. That's the story of the final section of Jesus' prayer. And it's a story in which not only are we included but one that we are actively called to participate in as we reveal God's love and righteousness to the world. May that be our prayer, may that be our desire as we seek to be the kind of people that God wants us to be in our everyday lives as we want and wish and desire to see God's kingdom come. Amen.